From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Today, we talk to the person behind two beloved brands that Minnesotans are proud to claim and pretty much constantly crave. I'm talking about John Puckett, who founded Caribou Coffee with his wife, Kim, and grew it into one of America's most prominent coffee chains. To this day, Minnesota is the only market in the world that Starbucks doesn't dominate, and that's thanks to Caribou. After selling Caribou at the end of 2000, John bought into Punch Pizza, which was then just a single restaurant in St. Paul. Today, Punch has 11 Twin Cities location, a 12th on the way, has won countless awards, inspired copycats around the country, and has even earned a presidential shout-out. But even with the national accolades and the seriously life-changing Neapolitan pizza, Punch has been very selective about its growth and focused on staying in Minnesota. And that goes back to the lessons John learned while growing Caribou. He's one of the most down-to-earth entrepreneurs you'll meet and a great lunch date. Joining us now is John Puckett. Thanks for being here, John. Well, I'm glad to be here. Did I get everything right? You did. Uh, hopefully. Somewhat. Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so let's kind of start, let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the beginning of Caribou. Um, I know I've read many times that it was, that the whole thing was inspired by some coffee you drank in Boston, a trip to Alaska, and an actual Caribou. Yeah, and, <laughs> and maybe not in that order. Okay. But, you know, really where it fundamentally started, and that's why... That was our founding vision of, of Caribou, which was that life is too short to spend Sunday night dreading to go in, to work on Monday. Mm-hmm. And we were both blessed with good jobs coming out of business school that we hated. So my wife... Right off the bat? Yeah. So we worked like crazy hours. I was in consulting and my wife was at uh, General Mills and then Dunkin' Donuts in Boston. And we would spend all day Sunday like, oh, man, we've got to go into the, to work tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And we just felt like life is way too short and too precious to not really feel connected to your work and not feel just passion for what you're doing. Had you And you were, you were how old at this time? Uh, 25. And had both you, you both went to business school. Yes. And did you both think that you were on a path to work for other people, to work for yeah, big companies? Yeah, we were kind of doing the, the classic corporate thing. Mm-hmm. And we looked, I mean, the thing I learned in consulting is, you know, the people that we were consulting for, the business people, the managers, I really wanted to do what they were doing. And so what was hard to be a consultant is you kind of, you know, you came up with a strategy, you came up with recommendations. But to me, the fun part was the people that were actually making it happen. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, made me say, let's let's do it ourselves. So you had this idea that you wanted to do something of your own. Was it immediately coffee? No, we looked at everything. We looked at bagels. We looked at <laughs> European bread baking. We looked at beer brewing. We looked at agric- you know, aquaculture or growing fish. And coffee just became so clearly the thing we wanted to get into. There was a great company in Boston mm-hmm. that has since been purchased by Starbucks called the Coffee Connection. And they were doing so many things right with coffee quality. And this was, was the early 90s or late 80s? Early 90s. Okay. And so Starbucks at the time wasn't on the East Coast. They were just, I think, in Seattle and Chicago at that time. 
And this company was just so good. And you could just see that there was a, a, a store in the basement of the building that I worked. And there was a line of customers all morning lining up to go to this place. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, hey, if we can do it better than this company's doing and match their quality, which was going to be a big, hard task to match. But this company was not necessarily the cleanest operator. They didn't really have the friendliest people. And so the really the entrepreneurial idea was, what if we could just do it better but and still have the same quality coffee? Maybe we've got something. So you know, we looked at different parts of the com- country to start up Caribou, and Minneapolis was our number one choice. Why? Well, actually, Washington was our first choice, D.C. <laughs> okay. And we we liked Washington and then Minneapolis and Denver. And Starbucks announced like 50 stores for Washington and mm-hmm. Denver. Mm-hmm. And we just, the one thing that stuck in my head from my consulting career at, ba- at Bain & Company was that profitability is defined by dominant local market share. So if you're going to start a business and be second fiddle to Starbucks right from the bat, you weren't going to really have a, ch- a chance to build a great company. And so we knew that wherever we picked, we really needed to be the dominant local company. And that's what led us to Minnesota. And they weren't and in Minnesota yet. They were not. And you know, Starbucks, if you interviewed time. Starbucks, they would say it was a mistake to let us get started so long in Minnesota before they entered here. Because as you said in the opening, the Twin Cities is the only place in the world that they're not number one. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had a chance to kill us early, yeah. but they didn't. Did you and Kim have a Minnesota connection? We did. My wife grew up here. Okay. And, makes it she, easier. But she really was the one that that liked the East Coast. Hmm. And it was it's always kind of hard to come back to your hometown and you run into your boyfriend at the <laughs> supermarket or the gas station and or maybe the teacher or ex, yeah, ex-boyfriend, <laughs> old boyfriend yeah, yeah. or your you know the teacher that you may have had a struggle with in the class. It's a small town mm-hmm. and, and and still in some neighborhoods. Um, but Minnesota ended up being such a great place to start this business. Because the the business leaders here are so eager to support other entrepreneurs, we found that very clearly um, as we attracted growth capital to grow Caribou. But just the workforce is fantastic. You, there's there, it's no, it's no surprise why companies like Dayton Hudson and Target and Best Buy all started here because it's such a just a nice. The parents do such a great job of raising their children. Hmm. You don't have to really teach people to be friendly and nice. Yeah, it's a real thing. It's Minnesota a real nice. thing. Um, so you quit your jobs. You move to Minnesota. Do you have a, a business plan? Do you have money? Where do you? How do you actually start this thing? We had so we we were kicked out of two apartments in Boston. Kicked out. I mean, the the landlords wanted to pay us because the real estate market got hotter and hotter. So we saved about $50,000. A lot of it was from just moving apartments because the ones we were renting were sold. Um, So we had that capital. And then it was really hard to raise other equity capital until we actually had a store open. But we were fortunate to have good friends and some family members that helped us out with raising another thirty dollars to $40,000. And then we had Marquette Bank at the time um, gave us an SBA loan. Uh-huh. for the balance. And one of the big challenges we had, we had a store picked out in the Skyway system because our original idea was Caribou was going to be a downtown Skyway in office building concept because that's what worked in Boston. Mm-hmm. We didn't really know what was happening out in the suburbs. So I signed the lease, 
Kim quit. So I quit um, two months earlier to arrange the financing and uh, the first site. I told my wife, okay, you keep working just in case this doesn't get off the ground. Then we're not totally screwed. <laughs> so I said, D -d quit the day I signed the lease. So I signed the lease. Well, what I didn't realize about real estate is when the tenant signs the lease, the landlord hasn't signed it yet. And so it doesn't necessarily mean the deal's done. And I guess one tenant in the building uh, objected to another coffee use coming in and threatened to sue the landlord who then backed out and said, I'm sorry, we can't honor your deal. And so Kim and had already quit her job, quit. just Ooh, quit her job. That's a rough time. And our financing, our bank financing was tied to that particular real estate location. So we lost our bank financing, but it ended up being a great blessing because we went out and looked at other, other things happening. And at the time, Brugger's Bagels in town mm -hmm. was growing very quickly. And we would just hang out in some of these bagel stores, um, specifically the one at 44th in France and Edina. Mm -hmm. And it was incredible, not only in the morning, but just all day, how many people were having impromptu business meetings there or going there after dropping their kids off to school. It was just kind of a gathering place. And that's what led us to kind of reconsider the whole business model of downtown only. We said, let's, let's try the suburbs. And it ended up being a very good decision because this gathering place idea of coffee houses in the suburbs was really a powerful thing. So, and it didn't really exist at that time. This was no. 1992. I mean, people, I mean, at that point, do you, I mean, were people, it's hard to remember a time before we were willing to pay $5 for a latte and hang out at a coffee just house and get Wi-Fi and all that. I mean, was it a tough sell? Was there a, was there a learning curve? It, no, it was more like an unmet demand. Okay. You know, so what we found when we opened in neighborhoods is that people were just clamoring for that, but no one had served that before. And so having a place with community tables and couches and fireplaces, you know, that whole concept it ended up being something that people just wanted to this day. And I mentioned Alaska as we kicked off. I mean, that that kind of inspired so, the So first look. it was coffee, then it was Minnesota, then we didn't have a name. So we tested different names and we thought caribou would be a great name caribou coffee because my wife and i when we graduated from alaska took a great trip all summer and backpacked our way through that through that state you went to school in alaska well we went there for vacation because oh, my, after you graduated. my wife's uncle had a job in anchorage and okay. he kind of was a professional salmon fisherman on the kenai river hmm. so he had a job just to support his salmon habit mm -hmm. and we stayed with him just to take a shower and then would hit the road for a week and go backpack in some of the amazing areas. And we just thought Caribou was a nice name and a litter and it also had a wonderful alliteration with coffee. Mm -hmm. And we tested different names with some of our business school friends that worked in Minnesota and other places in the country. And people loved the name Caribou Coffee. What was the worst name you tested? Do you oh, remember? Like urban City Coffee or <laughs> You know, city grind, and you know what's really funny is sometimes I see some of those bad names oh, for sure. that are up, you yeah. know, up up on storefronts. I feel like they're on billboards in in sitcoms too, like City Grind, the yeah, coffee and, place. And the name is so important. Yeah, and that stuck with you know it's one of the reasons I like Punch Pizza. Mm -hmm. You know, Caribou mm -hmm. Coffee, Punch Pizza. You right. don't forget it. Right. You know, and people say let's go to Caribou or let's go to Punch, and I think that's a very important thing if you have a retail brand. That number one, people can remember your name. Mm -hmm. When you opened that first location in Edina, was it a hit right out of the gate? Oh, it was a struggle. I mean, we we could tell that we were meeting a need, 
But at it was, so we did great in the morning, did pretty well all day, and then at six o'clock at night, we were dead. And I just have mem- fond memories of going down to the Dinah Theater at night mm-hmm. and handing out free coffee coupons while my wife ran the coffee machine, uh-huh. you know, the barista machine, and um, running back to the store like mad to get there. And there'd be a line out the door for everybody to get their free coffee. And People like free. They love free. But no, it, the best thing about Caribou is you could tell every day we got a little busier mm-hmm. and every month we got a little busier than the previous month. And then it, once we had that storefront and we could show people what we were doing, it became very easy to raise capital. So how quickly did you expand? So within six months, we had our second location at Lake and Hennepin, which is now, I think, a cosmetic store. Mm-hmm. Um, the third location was in Wayzata. Um, and so we were How many much, could we go before you would lose track of all the... Would you know them all? Probably the first 12. <laughs> wow. And we were kind of constantly raising capital. So every six months to a year, we were raising another round of capital. Uh, was that scary? Was that easy? How, it was a race. I mean, at, at the time, um, all the business models for people doing what we were doing, which was trying to create a retail brand, everyone wanted to emulate you know, Boston Chicken or Starbucks. There wasn't a lot of models for more organic growth. It was get equity, then get venture capital, and then do your Series A and Series B preferred stock, and then go public. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that, what you wanted to do. That's what we wanted to do. So we had a business model, you know, our first business plan, we wanted to do over 100 stores. We wanted to build a national brand. So when you have that mindset from the start, um, is it how do you create because you were also trying to create something that felt very cozy and neighborhood friendly. How do you create that intimate brand experience and have plans to go global at the same time? I think it's when you're 25, 26 years old, you think you can do both. Uh-huh. You know, so it was a little bit naive to think that we could grow that quickly and create the culture we wanted to create. And what what we did find is that the Minnesota culture was fantastic, but it got really difficult in Detroit, Atlanta, North Carolina to translate the type of culture and service we wanted our customers to experience. Because you weren't there? We weren't there. We weren't there long enough. Um, the, the, the guy named Scott Beck, who was grew... Um, Blockbuster Video, and then grew Boston Chicken. I remember having dinner with him when we were looking at putting Einstein bagels together with Caribou. And now it is together, but mm-hmm. back then we were looking at putting the companies together. And he talked to me about how difficult it is to have a high-growth retail concept, and he, he likened it to the situation of you have a Bunsen burner with a, with a pot on the burner, and culture is your heat. And then the faster you grow, the more cold water you're pouring in there because it's all new people that don't understand your culture. Mm -hmm. And it becomes just a race to see how quickly you can get the culture built to how quickly the new people that don't understand your culture will kill your culture or or extinguish your culture. So did you have stores that just didn't work? Did you have to close some or were they just not working as well as the ones in Minnesota? Well, the, the other thing we found is real estate's different in every market. So what could work in Minnesota didn't necessarily work in Atlanta, Georgia. Like um, what? Parking. 
um, urban parking. You needed more parking than you could ever imagine in some other cities. If people didn't see a big parking lot in front of you, you had no chance. Whereas in Minnesota, you can get away with people will go around the block or, or park on the street. Um, the, the, the biggest thing, though, was just the inherent niceness of people. Minnesota people are just nicer, so you don't have to train them to smile. Mm-hmm. You don't have to train them to say please and thank you. And in Atlanta, Georgia, that was a challenge. Hmm. So, so what did you do as it started getting harder? Well, it was it became just a battle. I mean, it was you know marketing. Um, we also had Starbucks fighting us tooth and nail because they realized what happened with Minnesota was they let us get a head start. And they vowed not to ever let us have more units than they did in other markets. So it was a grind once we were at seven or eight other markets other than Minnesota to try to make this work. So back up one second. When Starbucks, when did Star, you started in 1992. When did Starbucks break into the Twin Cities? Probably three years later. And we probably had 15 stores at that time. And what happened? How did you did you kind of have a plan to like attack yeah, it head I mean, on? Starbucks, Were you crying? Were you like, what, what happened? No, the greatest thing about you know, competition we found is, you know, Starbucks definitely hurt us in some places, especially outside of Minnesota. But we hurt them in Minnesota. And so what it forced us to do was be- to become better. Mm-hmm. So we had not been a coffee roaster ourselves. We thought that that was not as critical as being friendly and making great drinks and running really well-run stores. And what we found was that, hey, if Starbucks is coming in, our competitive advantage is, could be we have fresher coffee and we have better coffee because, you know, Starbucks is known as Charbucks to a lot of people, that really dark roast. Mm-hmm. And what that did for them, which was really smart, is it covers up staleness. So the more you roast coffee, you taste the roast versus the coffee. But when you have really fresh coffee and you roast it less, you really taste all the different nuances between a Costa Rica or a Sumatra or a, a Papua New Guinea. And if you roast it all, it all just tastes like roast. And so we thought our one of our competitive advantages would be buy really great single-origin coffees, roast them lighter than Starbucks so you can really taste the difference. Huh. And we invested a lot in roasting knowledge and roasting um, capacity. And did you see the difference right away? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it also made us more proud of what we were doing. In hindsight, I wish I wish we would have roasted right from the start because our the first day we roasted our own coffee, I could tell a tremendous difference in the taste. Hmm. Now, it may just be like when you do a 10-mile hike and you get to the top, the view looks just amazing, mm-hmm. you know, because you did the work yourself. But there was something about the craftsmanship of making our own and the pride. But then when Starbucks opened the first day, you know, we had T-shirts that all of our staff wore in all our stores that said, we're the only company roasting in Minnesota. Hmm. You know, just to, just yeah. to kind of play with them a little so bit. So did you, it seems like you sort of enjoyed that competition. Oh, yeah. And the the media loved it. Coffee wars. And it really and that it actually elevated the whole industry. So our sales actually grew faster after Starbucks came into this market than they did before they were in the market. And did you ever have any dealings with them directly? Did did Howard Schultz ever call you and say, could you just stop already? Or Well, they got really angry. You know, we were a husband-wife team, mm-hmm. you know, little caribou. And I don't know if they'd had somebody fight that dramatically against them before and they stole a couple of leases from us and then we used our husband wife we're local connections to steal a couple of local leases from them and by steal i mean we wasn't really stealing but we convinced the landlord just like that first lease i mentioned that we lost 
uh, that Starbucks had signed. Mm-hmm. It was on a Starbucks form. We convinced the landlord to cross out the name Starbucks and wow. put caribou in. And we signed and crossed out, you know, Starbucks. Uh-huh. And they did the same thing to us using their national connections at like ID, IDS Center. Mm-hmm. They stole, we had a lease there that they stole. But then we stole all the mom and pop locations like Grand Avenue. Hmm. Wow. So it was good. So we had a conference call with them and their real estate person. And they basically said, how can you, do you know who you're messing with? Right. And we said, basically, bring it on, you know? Wow. And did, w- were there any thoughts at that point of like, maybe we should sell to them? Maybe, no, you were. No, we wanted to do our, you know, they they offered to, to buy us at that early stage. And we also knew they had a history of offering to buy companies just to slow them down. So we politely said, you know, we didn't really say bring it on. We said, no, we, you know, we're, we really want to do our own, uh, pursue our own dreams. So things are going really well in Minnesota. At the same time, you're having some challenges other places. You're continuing to raise money. You're continuing to add stores. When did it get to be too much? Or or when did you start thinking, maybe we do want to get out? Yeah, so as we got bigger, you know, the job actually became, ironically, a little bit more like the job we had like that job in Boston where we were spending some time dreading Mondays. I mm-hmm. mean, once I mean, we were still the largest shareholder, but we had given up control and we had very powerful board members um, that were very accomplished, very smart. Um, but, you know, dreading I spent a lot of um, pre-board meetings, dreading those those um, those interactions. And venture capital is a wonderful thing. I think I was listening to a great podcast with John Mackey at Whole Foods, mm-hmm. and he talked about them as hitchhikers with a with a credit card for gas. <laughs> it all goes great when you're all on track and you're going to the right location. Yeah, because um, they buy the gas and they get you there. But what happens when you when you're not quite on the right track? They'll take over your company and boot you out. So you know. That didn't happen to us, but we knew it could happen. And, and so you wanted to... That was in the late 90s mm-hmm. that it got less fun. And that's when the dot-coms were, you know, a lot of their investments in venture capital were exploding in value in a good way before the crash. And they were seeing Caribou as it was a... We had gotten it solidly profitable, but it wasn't going to be the 100 times your investment type of return. Mm-hmm. And so it was very... It became very adversarial with our own board of directors. And I was like, man, life is too short if your own board of directors... Your own motto. Yeah. Life is too short. It is. And it, that was kind of a disappointing thing. So yeah. it, it stuck in my head. If I ever have a chance to build another company... I don't want to give up any of the control or any of the equity. Wow, which is a, a good segue to your next venture. But but before we talk about Punch, I, it, when you think about it, I'm sure you and Kim have probably talked about this many, many times. Is there anything you would do differently or was it? did you have to go through it the way it went? Well, on one, on one hand, if we didn't raise all the capital that becoming a national brand attracts, it may have been hard to attract that much capital if we said we only want to build a Minnesota business that then grows regionally. Mm-hmm. That's not as sexy as we're going to be the the next national coffee brand. So it may have been hard to attract the capital to build out the Twin Cities. Um, so in, a, in effect, that helped us compete, to compete against Starbucks. But obviously, like the one thing I would love to know differently is that if we would have just grown a little slower and not been in such a hurry to grow nationally... Um, I think, you know, the story could have been different. Hmm. 
I still may be roasting coffee today. Do you? How do you feel when you walk into a Caribou Coffee today? A, a lot of pride. Do you? Yeah, it's like you know, it's like your your son or daughter that you see off on their own. Mm-hmm. You know, you tons of pride, a lot of memories. And what's really weird is I see it. You know, every time you go on vacation, you see it in these weird places like you know the Target and you know in Fort Myers, or you see it, you see it. Somebody's brewing it up in a doctor's office. You know, in Washington D.C. It's just it's everywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, that's quite an accomplishment. So, so then, so you sell in the end of 2000 yeah. and less than a year later, you're in the pizza business. Yeah. Did that, did that, how, why, how? It wasn't, it wasn't by design. So we had, we had the fortune to take some time off. So we rented a house in Italy for three months just to chill out. We had a two-year-old daughter at, uh, and so didn't have to worry about school. So we just hung out in Italy, but before that trip, I talked to the guy that started Punch Pizza in Highland Village in St. Paul. And Punch, while we were going Caribou, had become one of my wife and I's, it was the our favorite restaurant. Mm-hmm. So it was where we started going for date night. We'd go there two or three times a month. And we live west of Boisetta. Mm-hmm. So we'd go there, have a bottle of wine, um, split a pizza, split a salad. It was just great. And so I'd gotten to know John Serrano, the founder, because he cooked every night. And I would just kind of, we'd finish our meal and I'd stand up by the bar there in the the original store and talk to him. And he had really admired what we'd done at Caribou. And I think I said to him, hey, we're selling our company. Would you ever want to grow this together? And he said, you know, I, I get approached, he got approached all the time because Punch is this incredible special thing. But he turned everybody away, but he was intrigued enough with our background and, and myself personally. He said, hey, we should consider that. So actually, he he went over to Italy when we were there, and we hung out together to see if we were compatible. And we actually hired a organizational psychologist to test us to see if we could work together. Wow! Um, and he said, "Yeah, you guys are really compatible." So I decided, you know, while we were in Italy, taking this time off after selling Caribou, I was already pretty much committed to getting sucked back into growing. Is something. that advice you'd give anybody thinking of going into business together to do an analysis Absolutely. before? I mean, especially if it's a partnership, because most partnerships don't work. Uh-huh. You know, husband-wife teams are they're, they're littered with, you know, divorce and things not working out. And I think we were, my wife and I, are very fortunate that we were able to grow caribou and get out uns, unscathed. Yeah, because it's very hard to do with with a family member. Um, and then most partnerships fail, and I think they fail for either compatibility reasons or the skill sets don't match up. And, you know, I've done this now for 18 years with John Serrano at Punch. Our skill set really matches up well. So when you joined Punch, what was your vision? Immediate growth? Well, well, the first thing we loved about it was that it was only open five nights a week for dinner only. And so it was open 20 hours a week. And that original store back then was already doing a million dollars off 20 hours a week. It had to be the most productive per hour store. Mm-hmm. I love the simplicity of the operation, um, the limited hours, because I was coming from coffee where we're in the stores at five o'clock in the morning and we're out at 10 and we're open 364 days of the year. And I thought, wow, this this lifestyle could be great for you, both your employees and as an owner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the product. I mean, I'm one of these entrepreneurs. Me too. If love I don't it. love the product, yeah. I mean, I could not be successful selling fish sticks or 
kind of anything mediocre. Yeah. I mean, I think really you have to just it. love what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I loved at Caribou. I loved what we were doing. I thought we made the best latte and the best roasted coffee that you could find. And I absolutely am convinced as a customer that we're making the best pizza in the world. And so finding something that you just love. So you combine, hey, I think this makes business sense. The economics look good. I'm proud of the product. And then the third piece of that is I think there's a business opportunity here. So d- were you thinking about, were you were you gun-shy at all about growth or fast growth Absolutely. because of what you had gone through with yeah, Caribou? Yeah, so I thought the coolest thing about being able to do Punch was taking everything I learned, the good and the bad, mm-hmm. from Caribou and trying it again. And so in a way, it was wonderful that we had the battles with our venture and it made me want to sell Caribou because it kind of pushed me, okay, you get another chance at this, let's do things differently. What were the key differences? It's not being in a hurry. So if you have something really good, you don't have to be worried that you're going to, you know, that someone's going to kill you. If you have something really good, your customers will protect you. So competing head-to-head against Starbucks in Minnesota and the fact that they actually helped us, that gave me a lot of confidence in pizza that, that as long as we do a good, really good job and try to keep getting better on product quality, service, friendliness, and cleanliness, mm-hmm. you know, we, it's just, it's your, your, it's, it's your own fate that you can control as long as you're willing to put the effort in. So I wasn't in so much of a hurry about uh, the, capturing the market opportunity. When you started expanding, I mean, you you have sort of a different model than that an initial restaurant in Highland. Why? Well, we wanted, no, actually, we learned a lot. We opened the exact same model in Eden Prairie, and it didn't work. So five nights a week, dinner only, no lunch. We're closed Sunday and Monday. And it was really frightening because we opened at X dollars a week, and then every week it was X minus 1%, X minus 2%, and so on and so forth. Like, what's wrong with the people of Eden Prairie? In the suburbs, you know, if you don't have a place for people to wait, you know, and you tell them, because we were table service, our original store still is with with service. Mm-hmm. And so you put your name down when it's busy, and in Highland Village, people just walk around for an hour, mm-hmm. and they figured it out. In Eden Prairie, when it's 100 degrees in the summer and you don't have a place for people to wait, they simply will just leave. And the other thing we found is, is that Sunday nights, no one wants to, to cook. And the fact that we were closed, we would, you could just, if you hung out at our store and watched people arrive and then see we're closed and then storm off angry. And the same thing with not being able, open for lunch. Eden Prairie is a really big lunch market. So we, we pretty quickly said, we've got to figure this out. And thank God, you know, we make a pizza in less than 60 seconds. So we said, maybe we can do this as a counter service um, operation. And you really ended up being sort of ahead of the time, yeah. wouldn't you say? Because, I mean, now it seems like everybody is shifting to counter service. I think at that time, Chipotle only had 15 or 20 restaurants. They had just entered Minnesota and St. Cloud. And so it was all this quick, now they talk about quick casual or um, fine casual. And that, that industry was just starting. We were one of the first people to do it. And we found a huge demand. So basically all we did was our original fine dining punch menu from Highland. We just offered that with no service um, in a very quick format that people didn't have to wait to order or wait to pay. 
and it was very popular. And it worked. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about values, because I know that's a big piece of this. I know on the, on the Punch Pizza website, you talk about, you know, what your values are, and you've gotten a lot of attention, not just for the pizza, which is worthy of attention, if you ask me, but but for your benefits and for your wages. And how did that evolve? You know, we always had strong values, but we really started thinking hard about six or seven years ago that once we proved that punch was going to be around for a while, a long while, Mm -hmm. and it really, we really struggled, not struggled, but we really looked hard at how can we make this not only a good company, but we want to build a great company. We want to build an excellent company. And so we started studying the best companies out there. And it was pretty clear to us that if you don't have really clear values and you don't let everyone know your values and you don't hire to those values and you don't let everyone know what the goal of the business is and you don't make sure your processes and your values are aligned with that goal, you're really missing something. So, you know, the companies like Costco um, that are that we really admire or I think I've told you earlier, In-N-Out Burger mm-hmm. on the West Coast. Um, so it led us to codifying those values, you know, things like um, – the pizza will save us, the importance of pizza, um, the no asshole rule that life's, you know, again, it kind of goes back to care. How does that, that rule work exactly? We have it on our walls uh-huh. and, and, and in all of our training materials that we will not tolerate assholes. <laughs> That's a good and, plan. You know, and, and we will maybe sometimes hire them by mistake, but our culture is so strong, we get rid of them. They generally self-select. Uh, we believe in family. Um, you know, our original store in Highland is like a family reunion when servers come back from either graduating from school or when they come back when, with their kids when they've moved out of town. There is a real family aspect to our employees, and do it's th- family-owned. Do you think that makes a difference to customers? Do you think that's a factor in them choosing your pizza over some other pizza? Oh, absolutely. Well, it also translates into quality and service. But when you have a, you can just tell when you come into a retail operation if the employees are engaged and they like their job. Mm-hmm. So if your employees like their job and they feel committed to the organization, it totally translates into a customer's sense of, you know, do I like this place and am I am I going to get a good experience? And is your retention much higher than average because of your wages and I think two things attitude. because of, you know, we treat our employees well and we want to have the best employees because we're very competitive. So it also translates into our competitive desire. But when you have employees that are proud of the company they're working for, that feel like they're well treated, that have advancement opportunities, um, that that directly results in a better tasting pizza and a more engaged employee. What was it like when President Obama called out Punch Pizza? It was fantastic. I mean, the, the funny <laughs> you story. You knew it was going to happen, right? And we you got know, some actually, advance warning. The, 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 a couple of funny stories with that. Number one, the White House just called and left a message on our answering machine at our <laughs> store voicemail. Uh-huh. And we have a PR person, Blos Olson, who um, we ask um, about this message. And he said, oh, that's um, 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 Mrs. Obama's um, personal secretary that called you. I think it's legit. So we thought it was a joke, number one. Mm-hmm. Um and, and, and what did they say? They just said, we're interested in talking to you. And, and Bliss said, well, it's three weeks before the State of the Union, so you may have something there. And it turned out that the chief of staff, I think, uh, McDonough mm-hmm. for Barack Obama, was from Minnesota and had been listening to WCCO, um, a little profile of punch raising our starting wage. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, we were we were shocked that they were interested. But you don't really know for security reasons or for the I think they don't really let you know until, that you're actually going to be in the State of the Union until hours before the actual address. So you weren't telling all your friends? No, and they ask us not to. Okay. And after that, I mean, I know there was a burst of, of media attention locally. Was it national as well? What, what, what well, happened? It was. And, you know, people wanted to know who this little pizza company yeah. was. But it was a great um, thing for business as well because the people have a lot of pride in Minnesota too about local businesses. Mm-hmm. I learned at Caribou, and I think we saw that at Punch. There's a lot of pride when local businesses do well. So I think that um, it, people might be surprised that you've stayed with this pizza company as long, even though it's Punch, and that you're still only in Minnesota. I mean, you're growing, you're about to open your 12th location. Yeah. Why haven't you gone national? Because what we don't need to, number one, is the other thing we found economically is I think we're more profitable now as a 11-store company than we were at Caribou with 100 stores. Wow. Because we're not spread out, we don't have to have as much um, regional support to support a national business. So you can build a very profitable, healthy business by staying local. It's not worth as much because we don't have a national brand. Yeah. But in terms of building a very strong family business that's built to last, um, we have a very healthy business, and it continues to grow in sales and profit every year. And Do you have outside investors? No. So it's just John owns 50%, I own 50%, and it makes us agree on things. So that structure doesn't – that's why you need to be tested, I think. <laughs> Because usually 50-50 partnerships are rife with problems because Mm -hmm. what if we disagree? Right. And we've agreed if we both don't agree on either a hiring decision or a real estate decision or a financing decision to not do it. It's better to not do it Hmm. than to force it through the other person. Will you continue to grow? Oh, yeah. So Only locally? No, we'll probably grow into Wisconsin or Iowa. And, you know, our again, one of our business models is In-N-Out Burger that you may have heard of in California. Now they're in Texas and Washington, but they're still family owned. Um, I think the the granddaughter of the founder is um, up until maybe Bill Gates knew or not. Um, 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 who's the Amazon? The She was the first billionaire. I think she was the richest woman in America, okay. Lindsay Snyder, okay. um, who inherited In-N-Out Burger. It's still a family-run business, hmm. but it's a billion-dollar company. You know, Punch, I don't know if we'll be a billion-dollar company, but Punch could be a two or $300 million regional brand in 30 or 40 years. And, and regional that, is enough for you? You don't have that no. little part of you that just wants to be everywhere? Only because it's great. And we think that's the better way for us to control quality. Because at the end of the day, if we grew at the expense of quality, it's it's not that exciting anymore. So the the fun thing now to try to figure out is, can we grow? Can we grow a little quicker, but still very in terms and still relatively slowly? But can we grow with internal cash flow so we don't need investors? Can we grow and still protect our culture? And can we grow and still get 10% better in quality every year, which is our goal? And I think that could result in a very big business even after I'm long buried. Hmm. Are you having fun? Yeah. You, you enjoy Can't you tell? Yeah, really totally. Fun. Yes. I mentioned that we're taking all our managers down to Austin, Texas next week to study a great business 
in, in our industry. Mm-hmm. And again, it's all about learning. And so when you own your own company, you know, we can spend more on labor than a public company can. We can treat people better than a public company can because we don't have shareholders that are questioning why our labor rate is much higher than the industry. Mm-hmm. And I think that be, have it, being able to be very long-term and long-term focused on quality and taking care of your employees, I think gives you a competitive advantage. You must get asked for advice all the time. I mean, especially today, it seems like, I mean, first of all, everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, even more than when you started. There are so many startups, it feels like in Minnesota, especially in the food and drink space, and our restaurant culture is unbelievable. What do you think about what's going on today, and and what would you tell uh the next would-be entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, I would love to talk to any entrepreneur out there that's that's having some good initial success, that's done the work of they're either a business plan or they've got a store or two up. I'd love to talk to them before they make any mistakes, especially before they take venture capital. Really? Um, what do you think the, the, the key is to, to building a successful business? I mean, again, it's for me as I'm an entrepreneur that has to love the product. And I have a very long um, time frame. I think it's be patient. Um, and it's it's taking little steps to improve versus to try to become a billion-dollar company overnight. But I'm in the restaurant business. So if you've got a great technology idea, mm-hmm. that could be a whole different thing because that's much more scalable. Our business is very human-intensive. So it boils down to the friendliness of the cashier that greeted you, to the commitment of the cook. So that that's the type of personal touch business that you just can't overexpand. Right. What's your wife doing these days? She's running a horse farm. Wow. So that sounds fun. Yeah. Uh, very different than yeah. pizza. Very different than coffee. Um, do you still enjoy like going to to punch? Do you have you ever maxed out on pizza? You know what sucks. <laughs> what. Um, once you own a business and it's yours, uh-huh. I don't enjoy going in our stores as a customer. I, I enjoy going in as an owner, mm-hmm. but I cannot go to a punch and anymore and have dinner without looking at, you know, is there a light bulb out? <laughs> right. Is everybody doing everything to standard? So I love being in our stores, but it does rob you of that punch experience as a customer. The same thing was true at Caribou. Mm-hmm. Um, you, could, you know, once we did Caribou, we could no longer go to our own stores and relax because you, you're always thinking about ways to improve it or you're always worried about, okay, how's that manager doing and what are they thinking about? So it does kind of rob you of that customer experience. Probably worth the trade-off, though. It's totally worth the trade-off. And you can still enjoy the pizza. Yes. Okay. John Puckett, thank you so much for chatting with us today. You're so welcome. So enlightening. Um, stick around. Next, we're going to go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business to get some practical advice that might help you start the next caribou coffee or punch pizza. Thanks, John. Thank you.
So how do you go about building a national brand and how do you know if that's the right approach for your business? Let's go back to the classroom with University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Professor David Deeds is the Schultz Professor of Entrepreneurship. Professor, much has changed since uh, John Puckett and his wife started Caribou Coffee. Would you say it's easier to build a national brand today? Are you better off taking the punch pizza approach, going slow and local? What do you have to think about? before you make that decision? I'm not sure it's easier or harder today to build a national brand. I think there's more tools with social media and all of those means by which to build a national brand, but there's a lot more noise. So I think it's really hard. But I think the real question is, what do you want? As an entrepreneur, what are you building? So are you trying to build something that you're going to own and run and be involved in for the rest of your life or are you building to sell? Because if you're building to own and run, you're building your business, then you have to be real, think real carefully about how you finance it, what you're doing, um, and how you do it. It seems like with the Puckets, once you open yourself up to taking that money, you're on a trajectory, whether you want to be or not. Absolutely. Because the investors have to have an exit. The investors are not building a business. They are earning returns for their investors. This is what venture capital does. And this is how venture capital is supposed to work. So if you listen to the interview, you can tell there was a lot of tension between the venture investors and, and, and John in Caribou. And it, this is not uncommon. But they have a 10-year time horizon at best. They have to take investors' money, invest, manage, and exit within 10 years. And really, they have a three to five year time horizon. And they also have to earn a minimum of five times their money back. And none of their investors want stock in a private company. It has to be either publicly traded stock or preferably cash. So there has to be an exit. So once you start down that path, then you are on the path most likely to sail. 99 out of 100 times, if you're successful, it's going to be sold. Right. Yes, occasionally there may be an IPO, an initial public offering. So the, the punch pizza approach, is that where more entrepreneurs and more business owners should be thinking, even if it isn't quite as sexy as taking VC money? My personal opinion is yes. I think we have created, you know, we have declining rates of, entre of new business formation and entrepreneurship in this country. And I think part of it is that the images we have of entrepreneurs are actually exclusionary in the sense that you have to be tech, you have to have an MBA from a gold standard, you have to be Ivy League, and you have to want to build something that's going to revolutionize the world. You know, it, we need people building businesses, um, I'll use Dick Schultz as an example. You know, he built Sound of Music. It took nine, you know, he built 12 stores over 15 years before he figured out Best Buy. He wasn't building a national brand. It was a regional, but he was face-to-face -face with customers and it took off. In the same way, John's face-to-face -face with customers. He's building a, co a company. And it's an interesting and strong company. I love Punch Pizza. So um, good. Right? It really is. <laughs> um, and so he is doing it the old-fashioned way. Yeah. I give an example of my to my students to differentiate. He's, venture capitalists build dragsters. You're going to put a lot of fuel in them, which is money, and they're going to go zero to 60 in, you know, a half a second, and most of them are going to blow up. 
And John's going the old-fashioned way. He's building a truck. Mm-hmm. He and his partner are doing it one at a time. They're using, if they're using financing, they're using debt financing and self-financing. And they're going to own this as far, you know, their horizon is, I'm going to give it to my kids, essentially. It seems to be their horizon. Right. And that's the two different models. That decision gets made the minute you take external financing because those guys have to have an exit. Right. You don't get to buy them out. Makes sense and great advice. Thank you, Professor Deeds. Thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also go to tcbmag.com slash by all means to learn more about the show and listen right from the website. On our next episode, we talk to Megan and Mike Tampty, the husband and wife founders of fast-growing women's fashion retailer Every, which is up to 85 stores, 120 million in annual revenue, and still growing. I'm Allison Kaplan on behalf of Twin Cities Business. Thanks for listening to By All Means. Thanks to Brad Jacobson, John Sullivan, and Tom Forlitti from St. Thomas, as well as Sam Schaust and Ricky Hannigan from Twin Cities Business for helping to produce and engineer our show. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Thanks also to Senior Media Relations Manager Vanita Sakar and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for helping us to make this happen. Hope you enjoyed, by all means. Bye.